0: Morning everyone. Our first reading is from Psalm 98, which is on page 448. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And the second reading is in Colossians chapter 3, and we'll start from verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, as it's been said, uh, good morning. I'm James. I'm one of the elders here. And it's such a privilege to be asked to share this psalm this morning uh, as we give Andy and Johnny a break from their regular preaching. <clears throat> psalm 98 has been a great encouragement to me as I've prepped this, and I pray it will be for you as well. Well, unless you've been on another planet this year, you'll at least be vaguely aware of the events of the 6th of May when Charles III was crowned as our new king. The coronation was a vast, spectacular occasion, the celebration of the decade, perhaps. And as the world watched on, at the center of that day was the service itself. And the, the main feature or the, the central activity through that service, other than Penny Mordant's impressive sword wielding skills, the main feature was singing. And do you know what was sung as the king and queen, newly crowned, first came together again? It was Psalm 98. Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was commissioned to write the music, did a solid job, I think, with his setting of this psalm, a piece called Make a Joyful Noise. And it may well be that you were glued to the TV, union flag in hand, ready to rise at the requisite moments and join with the choir's anthems. I suspect most of us were not quite there. But of course, the grand celebration of, of that day, and indeed the king who was crowned, they only give us the tiniest glimpse of the king that this psalm was actually written about. But maybe you aren't feeling particularly ready to burst into jubilant song for God either. In fact, maybe you're feeling a million miles from that today. And of course, there are, there are many valid reasons why joy might feel distant for you this morning. But isn't it true that the main reason we lack joy in God is that we have too small a view of him? Well, this psalm, it speaks right into that. It was commissioned not by King Charles, but by the King of the universe for us to hear this morning. But before we dive into it, let me pray. Heavenly Father, your word is rich and a source of great joy. Thank you for giving us this psalm, and that you know exactly what each of us needs to hear from it. We pray your spirit will be at work now, so despite my weak words, our hearts will be changed and grown by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series of psalms of thanksgiving, or kingship, and Psalm 98 really is a psalm of pure joy. There are no Enemies in sight, unlike in many of the psalms, what we have in view is, is God, creation, and humankind. This is the psalm that prompted Isaac Watts to pen Joy to the World over 300 years ago, which, by the way, is not a Christmas carol. It's not really about Jesus' birth. But I couldn't resist tying our summary on the sheets to that famous opening line, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. And as we go through, we're going to see three big reasons why we can sing alongside creation. And the reasons they're both challenging and also wonderfully liberating. Now, as we go, I'd love you to help me by keeping your Bibles open. So that's page 448. Um, and you can follow along those points on the handout as well. Or rather, you can, you can write them in those lovely blank spaces. I usually find that helps me stay awake. So page 448. And our first point, we can sing with creation because our Lord is a saviour. So let's look at verse 1, page 448, first one. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So as we know, in about 90 minutes' time, the whistle will blow for the end of the World Cup final match and one side will be victorious. Unless it goes to penalties, which knowing England is quite likely. But just picture what it will be like in the stadium as a fan on the winning side, hopefully England. Maybe you've experienced that sort of thing for yourself. There will be cheers, there will be cries of joy and as Johnny said, there will be singing. And this psalm is a call to sing for joy in response to a victory. So what is the victory being referred to? Well, if you know a bit of the history of God's people in the Old Testament, in the Bible, and you, you think of big acts of salvation, what might come to mind is the Exodus from Egypt, where God powerfully worked through signs and wonders and used Moses to lead his people from slavery, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and towards the Promised Land. And that does seem to be uh, what the psalm's getting at. The phrase, new song, is probably referring back to Exodus 15, when Moses and Miriam led the Israelites in singing, right after their escape from Egypt. God's actions in the Exodus were literally marvellous. Even some Egyptians saw God's power and turned to him. Now, that original song in Exodus 15, that was a classic, topped all the charts, but the psalmist is calling for a new one. And it might be that this particular new song, this psalm, was most relevant to Israel after God later rescued them from exile in Babylon. That would have felt like a whole new exodus. And it's clear when we read about that elsewhere in the Bible that God alone worked that salvation as well. Now, this language of, of the Lord's right hand and his holy arm they, they build on a picture of him being like this, this strong warrior. I, I realize I'm not the preacher to make this illustration work. I, I should have got Ransford down. Um, use your imagination. This is Ransford's arm. The Lord is a strong warrior, even stronger than Ransford. And actually Moses sings that as well in his Exodus song, not the bit about Ransford. It's helpful, really helpful for us to grasp this idea of the Lord being like a, a warrior king who protected his people and vanquished enemies. Whether those were physical armies that they came up against or false gods in lands like Egypt. This would have been a concept really familiar to the original readers. The Lord takes on Israel's enemies and the Lord wins. We'll even see later that they're singing is accompanied by military instruments. I don't know if you've uh, seen the film Troy from 2004. Uh, as the name suggests, it's a big-screen epic which retells that famous story from Homer's Iliad. I won't give a full summary. But for much of the beginning of the film, we see the Greeks moving from region to region, conquering and growing this army, which will eventually go up against Troy. Troy. And it turns out their battles, they aren't won so much by the size of their army or the skill of the fighters, but by the heroic Greek warrior Achilles, played, of course, by the ageless Brad Pitt. And in one scene, this, this still small Greek army comes up against the vast hordes of Thessaly. And Thessaly, they offer the Greeks a one-on-one duel to settle the entire battle. So they put forward their champion, this absolute giant of a man, 10 feet tall, battle scars across his muscled body. And the Greek leaders, of course, they want Achilles as their champion. But they're not on great terms with Achilles. And so they have to persuade him to be their representative in this duel. And this is what they say to him. Look at the men's faces. You can save hundreds of them. You can end this war with a single swing of your sword. Think how many songs they'll sing in your honor. And so Achilles, he turns around, he rushes at his terrifying opponent, and in this memorable scene, he, he dodges the thrown spears. He leaps up, and with a single precise stab, he brings down the giant, and he wins the war. Now, the, the rank upon rank of soldiers behind him, they haven't had to lift a finger. But they get the victory. And that's perhaps something of how it felt for the people of Israel when they saw their warrior king, Yahweh, the Lord, rescue them from their enemies. But as we, as we look at this psalm today, we have all the more reason to sing a new song. We have the privilege of living at a point in history where we can see the Lord's greatest victory, his greatest work of salvation as we read in the Gospels of how he sent his own son, Jesus, to be our representative. Jesus, who is described in Revelation 19 as a mighty warrior taking the victory. Jesus, who wins the entire battle for his army, not with a swing of a sword like Achilles, but by laying down arms and taking that spear in his side as he hung on a cross for us. And like the Israelites, we bring nothing to this victory. But we can honour him in song, now and through eternity. We heard from our, our reading in Colossians that as we sing, we also teach and remind one another, just as the psalmist here remembers the marvellous things the Lord has done. And incidentally, yes, I do think this means we should keep writing and singing new songs, Jump back with me to verse 2, and I, I promise we're going to speed up now. <laughs> verse 2. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Notice these words are tinted with warning as well as blessing. It's a double-edged sword. Because in Exodus, just as Moses saw the Lord's salvation, so Pharaoh saw the Lord's righteousness and was swept away with his armies by the sea while Israel escaped. And then verse 3, verse 3 builds on this. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, if you were at uh, Revive, the commission festival back in June, you might remember that this pairing of words, love and faithfulness, is covenant language. It's used particularly heavily in Psalm 89, a few pages back. You see, throughout that exile in Babylon, Israel had been calling on the Lord to remember his covenants, to remember his promises, to bless them. And now he has answered that prayer. He's rescued them from exile. And so they rejoice. You might have noticed the promises here were to Israel. Israel were the covenant people. So they are told that all the ends of the earth, that is all nations have seen his saving works. At no point here is there a direct promise of salvation for the other nations. But for our, us here today, I think by and large Gentiles, people from those, those other nations, we can marvel that we are included in the ultimate fulfillment of these promises. Jesus declared that all who trust in him are saved. We get, we get grafted into promises originally made to Israel and so because we're included in Christ, we as well, we can celebrate in this psalm. So let's sing to him at every opportunity, because he's our saviour, who has won victory for us. But the psalm doesn't stop there, does it? In fact, it's ramping up. These first three verses, um, they focused in on, on God's people. But now the circle is widening, this time to all people, all the earth. It's a bit like we started with a few sopranos singing the melody, but now some more backing singers have arrived. The harmony coming in, and the volume of this song rises. So here's our second point. We can sing with creation because our Lord is king. Follow with me from verse 4. Verse 4. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Now these verses, they're, they're bookended by that phrase, shout for joy to the Lord. And the end of verse 6, you can see there, it explains why. It's because the Lord is the King. The praise in this section is exuberant, and in the Old Testament, we most often have shouting like this when a king is crowned. So, for example, when Saul is made king in 1 Samuel, the people shout, Long live the king! But looking forwards into the New Testament is actually even more enlightening because in an event that's recounted in all four Gospels, as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the people shout for joy. Hosanna, they cry! Glory in the highest. Blessed is the king of Israel. And by the way, a, a triumphal entry was a Roman parade, normally done after a military victory. Our warrior king, Jesus, won total victory on the cross and rose to rule. So we too can shout and sing and dance, knowing that he reigns. Maybe you're here today, and you, uh, or you're listening in, and you don't ne- yet know this King Jesus. Well, this call is for you as well. Jesus is a King unlike any other you will ever see crowned, and he's got the power to bring you true, deep joy of a kind that you won't find elsewhere. So can I implore you to investigate further? Um, you might start by asking the person who you came with, or you can ask me, or anyone you've seen up front, Jesus' offer to you is free, it's unconditional, and it's mind-blowingly good news. But if you do know Jesus as your king, have you recognized him as your ultimate source of joy? Someone once said, joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Jesus being our king, is what will bring us joy. Or as we heard in our reading from Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So if you're that person from our introduction who's feeling a million miles away from bursting into song this morning, this is for you. And singing is such a great way to build and teach our hearts in this. But please don't mishear me. This isn't about constant exclusive joy or a false pretense of happiness. We're emotional beings in a world riddled with joys as well as sufferings. But in Christ, our ultimate, our eternal perspective really can be joy. So let him rule in your heart, not just reside, but rule. And as we know as well from uh, our favorite kids song, we didn't sing it today, but joy is also a fruit of the Spirit. It's something the Holy Spirit will grow in us as we follow him. What an amazing promise that is. But we have slightly digressed because this psalm is particularly calling us to sing from our joy, to sing our hearts out. Singing is one of the main gifts God gives us to express joy. I think most people, most cultures would acknowledge deep links between singing and joy. But it is a gift from God. Has that sunk in for you? You might want to reflect later on, on how you could fan into flame your joy through singing. And many of us, uh, me included, would do well to note that this is not contained, self-conscious praise. It's wholehearted, often spontaneous, sometimes verging on shouty praise, and we sing together. We're created to praise our God now and into eternity as his church. Now in verses 4 and 5, look down again with me from verse 4, music is mentioned alongside singing, and the music is part of the praise. It accompanies singing or shouting, and uh, we read this elsewhere as well. It, it's good to have people serving us with musical skills joining in our praise. Now, there are various references ha- here. We won't have time to fully look up with some of the instruments. Um, so like how uh, trumpets are famously used as the Lord brings down the walls of Jericho or the ram's horns in Exodus 19, signaling when the mountain of the Lord can be safely approached. But in all cases the use of musical instruments brings glory to God in his victory and is part of our praise. Just quickly as well, before we move on, we said this call is for all the earth, all people. We heard a couple of weeks ago as uh, Jacob preached for us and spoke from Psalm 96, which is quite a similar psalm. But we see here that our worship is inherently evangelistic. The trumpets and horns no longer intimidate the enemies of God's people, but are part of a joyful proclamation of what the Lord has done, inviting others to come and hear. So sing loudly, friends. On to the final stanza of this psalm, and our last point. We can sing with creation because our Lord will judge. So let's explore that. Verse 7, we're reaching now the, the widest circle. The call to sing is no longer just for people, but now it's for all of creation. It's a bit like the whole choir's arrived. We've got this full, glorious chorus. Let me read from verse 7. Have a look down. Verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. So the praise now, it's, it's inarticulate, unlike the songs of people. And notice how all aspects of creation are included. The sea and the world, the rivers and the mountains, and everything within, all the creatures. Even the things associated with judgment, like the sea which swept over the Egyptians, now pay homage to the king of creation. And the clapping of the rivers is reminiscent, again, of how God's people in, in the Old Testament, they would clap their hands when they saw a new king crowned. Now, the idea of creation resounding in these verses is powerful. And I wanted to share one of my favorite little bits of science from school. Bear with me. Because I think it gives a glimpse at the way music and nature are sort of bound together in beauty. So if you go onto YouTube, other video platforms are available, and you search for Resonance Experiment, hit the first link, you'll see something like this. It's called a cladney plate. It's just a metal plate with some sand on it. Not much on their own, but something wonderful happens when these two resonate together. Because as the plate vibrates with sound, these amazing patterns emerge from the sand, seemingly out of nowhere and with different frequencies, a bit like different musical notes, all sorts of different patterns appear. It's, it's quite amazing. It's worth having a look. And in some way, there's a sense that something similarly beautiful happens as we sing along with nature to the king of creation. Our praises resound together. And this, this isn't just surface-level poetry. We were in Romans earlier. In Romans 8, we read that creation was made to be more alive and glorious than its current state. It's groaning as it waits to be made new. If even nature has this in store, imagine how we will be changed. Now, this idea that creation is wrapped up in God's salvation plan, it's not actually one we talk about all that much. It might even be new to you. Um, but Jesus actually refers to this idea right in that gospel account, we mentioned earlier, as he enters Jerusalem on the donkey. Because the Pharisees, they tell Jesus to hush those people who are shouting for joy. And Jesus replies with this, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Even the earth beneath our feet is celebrating Jesus' rule and awaiting his return. So let us sing alongside creation or in the words of an AI that I told to summarize this in the style of C.S. Lewis. May we, may we become instruments of rejoicing as we lift our voices and hearts in praise to the one who orchestrates the galaxies. You're probably wishing I just got it to write the whole sermon, aren't you? <laughs> um, let's have a look now at verse 9. Have a look down, verse 9. Let them, that's all parts of creation, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, if we were singing this psalm as a song at CCB, exactly as written, what kind of final verse do you think this would be? Would we reach the end and then loop back, repeating verse 9 even louder, as the rub on the drums goes wild and the trumpets soar? Or would it be a, a quiet final verse, perhaps without instruments even, because this is a reflective, poignant point? Or would we just omit this verse altogether, because the others are really good, and you know, why ruin a good hymn with the awkward verse they sang a few hundred years ago? Well, I want to suggest this final verse is an absolute banger. Sorry to borrow an Andy phrase. It's, it's a massive verse, and it is a celebration is given as the reason to sing with all creation as we await the Lord's coming. But if you're anything like me, you hit this verse and it feels like the song's ended, but the guitarist has strummed the wrong chord, so it sort of feels wrong, unresolved. We're not quite sure what's just happened. And perhaps this reaction is revealing of how we naturally feel about judgment. Judgment. We're told elsewhere that fearing the Lord and his righteousness is wisdom. But this psalm is actually challenging us to be able to celebrate God's justice and judgment. It might almost feel inappropriate. Let's go back to the Israelites. They yearned for justice and equity. Equity means fairness. Because they were physically surrounded by enemies. And whilst in Britain we have something really that's quite rare in the context of human history, which is a, a strong sense of military safety and a pretty fair justice system, the people of the ancient world, they had no such guarantees. So their desire for fair judgment would have been potent in a way that we today might struggle to understand. They really could celebrate in knowing that God saw the wickedness of their enemies would hear every single case and would one day bring perfect justice. But perhaps it's not really so different for us. Do you see justice as you look around the world? In the decisions of exploitative leaders, the actions of cruel bosses, the unfairness of illness, or even in your own heart? The Lord... Will hear every case in full because he's seen every moment, he's read every heart. He is the only perfect judge. Now I don't know what it will look like exactly, but personally I can't wait for justice, for the pain of loss that close friends have gone through, or the unfairness of people who constantly exploit the weaknesses of others and only ever seem to be rewarded or even just times my words have been twisted a bit and used against me. I'm sure you can think of reasons to look forward to justice. But perhaps you're aware here that there's a, a growing tension, a bit of an elephant in the room, because justice for all of those things is well and good. But I know that what's in my heart and the things I've done would not stand up in court before a perfect judge. And the psalmist would have known that as well. So how can we possibly look forward to judgment? It's a, a paradox that runs through the whole Old Testament. But this is the marvel of the cross. <clears throat> the cross resolves the tension <clears throat> between God's perfect justice and his great mercy. At the cross they meet as God's wrath for our rejection of him gets taken out on Jesus instead. So if you trust in Jesus, God looks on you and sees Jesus' righteousness, his clean slate. The psalmist seems to be trusting in the Lord's mercy, even without the clear view of Christ that we have. So knowing our Saviour Jesus, we can look at judgment through a different lens. We can put on gospel goggles, because it's Jesus in the dock, instead of us. So, if you are feeling far from rejoicing this morning, perhaps even angry with God, can you take the things at the root of that anger or that sadness or that frustration and find a deeper joy in looking forwards to perfect judgment? Judgment's good because it brings justice. And judgment's good because that final day will be when we first see Jesus face to face to be with him forever in a new song-filled creation. In fact, what better way to express our dependence on God than to celebrate judgment? Because in considering judgment, we can't escape our absolute need for a saviour. Andrew Lloyd Webber, he said this of his piece. What we want to take from this is how important it is to be positive in order to fight the many things that are going wrong in the world at the moment. That's his verdict on this psalm. Lloyd Webber sees some of the symptoms of sin in the world, the unfairness of it, but what a tragedy that he cannot recognize the king in his song who reigns and will judge all of that evil. He'll right all the wrongs. Friends, we don't need to battle evil with our positiveness. We can sing because our king has already won the victory. We can sing... Because our king rules now. And we can sing because he will return to judge. So are you rejoicing in him? Will you let joy be a backing track to your life? I'm going to close with a prayer from Tim Keller's notes on this psalm. And I'll read it slowly. And you might like to echo these words in your heart with me. So let me pray. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. Amen.